a lot of companies are afraid of alienating anybody because for them, anybody could be a customer. And so if you're going to alienate someone, then they're like, well, that doesn't make business sense. For us, we, we think the opposite. I would love to alienate a lot of people um, because it sort of uh, brings your actual customer base into focus. And then you get to make stuff for your people. I mean, the notion that everyone in the world is a customer, I just don't, I mean, yeah, technically, yeah, anyone could, could plop down money for your product, but I think it's more important to find people who are really good fits. Ground Up, episode 24. What if I told you that Basecamp was sort of an accident? In 1999, Jason Fried's design agency, 37 Signals, developed an internal tool to solve their project and client management issues. They never intended it for it to be a standalone product. As it turns out, a lot of other people were having those same issues, and they wanted a solution too. Almost 20 years later, Basecamp is doing tens of millions in revenue, is profitable, and just 56 employees, most all of whom work remotely. Oh, and they're bootstrapped. They didn't take VC. They don't care about world dominance. They asked that their employees work no more than 40 hours a week. They did everything different. So how did Basecamp flip the Silicon Valley mindset on its head, yet still achieve massive adoption and profitability? Sit back as Freed shares all of that and much more. We started the business back in 1999 as a web design shop. So we were, we were doing work for hire. People needed a, uh, people had a site. Typically, they had one. We brought some people online, but most people had something at that point, and then we would redesign it for them to make it better. And um, we kept doing those, and we kept getting busier and busier. And then um, we we needed a better way. I'm skipping over a bunch of stuff, but basically, we needed a better way to manage all these projects we were doing because uh, it, it was turning into a mess. Um, basically, we were emailing things back and forth. We were having a lot of in-person meetings and phone calls. There were different versions of the truth everywhere. Um, and by that, I mean like what was in my inbox was not what was in someone else's inbox. And someone else's inbox had a different part of the conversation. And there was no way to know like any – there's no way to know what was going on really. Um, and this is, by the way, still a very common problem today. The technology shifted. Maybe people use chat now, but chat's a terrible way to run projects too. Because it just makes it worse. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's a mess, you know. And, and you need more than communication. Communication is not the only thing. You need coordination. You need a sense of of, of stability and knowing where things are and where to find things. And you don't just want to throw things onto conveyor belts that then move out of the way, which is what a chat room is. Chat's helpful in some ways, but it's terrible in other ways. Anyway, point is, is that you know, whatever the technology was, we, we just couldn't, we didn't feel like we had a handle on what was going on. Um, and this gets to be worse and worse as you grow. Like you can kind of manage your DIY version of project management, you know, with a variety of tools when you're a few people, but then you get to be six or seven or eight and it's just, it's, it's a mess. You have no process. Everyone does things different ways and, and, and you can't jump into a project and know how, how it's being run because someone else runs it a different way and the whole thing. So any, anyway, we, um, decided to build our own tool because we couldn't find anything that we liked. And so we, um, we, we built something. We started using it internally. We spent a few months doing it. And we started using it internally with our own clients. And our clients started saying, what is this thing you're using? Like, what is this thing? Because this is something we need too. We have our own projects and they're a mess also. And so the light bulb goes on over your head and you're like, aha, maybe there's a product here. If we need this, someone else probably needs it too. And maybe there's a lot of people who need it. 
So let's uh, package it up, turn it into something, and throw it on the market, put some prices on it, and see what happens. And so we did that, and it turns out that about a year later or so, it could support us. Um, and we didn't need to do web design anymore. We could focus entirely on software, which was more fun for us because we got to build stuff. You know, a lot of design firms, they think they know everything, and we did too, which is like, we're going to tell our clients what to do, and they're going to follow us. And if they don't follow us, well, what's their problem, right? And then eventually you make your own product, and then you have to put your own knowledge to the test. And that's a really fun thing to do is to be like, well, we've been telling everyone else how to do things forever. Uh, do we know actually how to do things for real? And so it's kind of cool to to do that. And uh, and we did that, and it turned out that it worked out well. But that was sort of the genesis. That's how it began. We were just solving our own problems, scratching our own itch. And uh, we didn't ever have any visions of this being a big thing. We never thought we would stop doing so uh, website design when we started doing software development. It just turned out that that was the case, and we found out we liked one better than the other, and it could support us. And so there we went. Wow. So it only took a year for it to get to a point where, where it could support it, and you didn't necessarily need to do web design anymore. That's right. Also, keep in mind that we were small intentionally. At that point, I think we had four or five people. So, you know, we didn't have to support a ton of costs. Our fixed costs are pretty in control, pretty low relative, you know, all, all things considered. A lot of companies these days, this, these startups have 30 people when they start up or 15 when they start up. It's like, well, of course, you're going to have a hard time surviving. Your costs are out of control. Uh, and this is sort of a part of the equation that isn't discussed very often. It's almost never discussed, in fact, in, in this industry, which, is, which are costs. Everyone's talking about raising money and spending money. Everyone's talking about spending. There's, there's very little talking about costs. And so we've always kept our, our, our overhead as low as we possibly can because that allows us to get to profitability quickly, and then that buys you time. As long as you're profitable, you, you have time. People say you can't buy time. Well, you can. You can be profitable. If you're profitable, you, you're buying yourself time. And um, so when we had four or five people, we could, we could you know, cover those costs pretty quickly. And it took about a year, and uh, we, were, we were off and running. And then, of course, we hired some more people after that at some point. But we've, all, we've never gotten ahead of ourselves. By that, I mean we've never, ever spent more money than we've taken in. And we've been profitable uh, every quarter for nearly 20 years. And that's sort of how we've always run the business. Wow. And who were those first customers? Was uh... – the, the adoption pretty much that your your web design clients did those act as like sort of the first users of Basecamp? Yeah, there were a couple, uh, a couple of those, but but most of them were. We had a small blog at the time called Signal versus Noise, which is the name of our blog today still. Um, but we built up a small audience, a modest audience, maybe a I don't know, I don't even know because back then you really didn't know. But it was like maybe a few thousand people or something who would read the blog regularly. Um, and we'd been building that for a few years, too, before we launched. We launched Basecamp in 2004. And I think we've been blogging either since, like, 99 or 2000 or 2001. I don't even remember the exact date wow. when we actually considered ourselves blogging. We were publishing stuff before that. So, anyway, very, very, very early. But we built an audience over a few years. And they were our first customers because a lot of the people in the audience were other designers and design firms because we had very opinionated points of view on design and the industry at large. And so we were writing these things and it was attracting people and paying attention, attracting people who were curious about our take on the industry because our take was unique and outspoken. And then when we launched Basecamp, we got to launch Basecamp to that audience, which was, you know, our people, designers, agencies, that sort of thing. And a lot of them had the same problems we did because everyone does. Everyone has the same problems. Like everyone thinks everyone's problems are unique. They're pretty similar. I mean, of course, there's different, you know, specific details of those problems, but you know, it's hard to stay on top of things. It's hard to stay organized. The more people you have, the harder it is to communicate. 
you know, when you, when people uh, are expecting stuff from you, you need to make sure there are clear deadlines that are enforced, that people know what, what, what they're responsible for. This is all the same stuff that will always be what's important and always was. And, and um, so everyone, so this was very relatable to, to our audience. They go, yep, yep, I've got the same problems. I'm working with my clients the same way or I'm working on internal projects the same way and they're a mess and I don't know what's going on. I thought this was the best we could do, but hey, maybe there's a better way. I think that's the really interesting insight is that a lot of people think the way they work is 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 the best way just because they heard that's how someone else works and they never question the way they work. They never even think, stop and think about it. They just go, well, this is, this is how you do it. So this is how we're doing it. Um, but when, when there's, you know, when you present an alternative, sometimes some people, a portion of the, of the, of the population will go, Hmm, maybe it's time for us to reevaluate and they'll try something new. And then that new thing, if that works can take off and become the next new paradigm. Uh, that didn't exist before. So I think that's kind of what happened with Basecamp. Yeah. And that's similar to, we had Rand Fishkin on recently and Moz or SEO Moz back then was blogging about SEO before they had a product. So he, he, you know, Rand Fishkin said something similar in that his first customers were his readers, you know, not necessarily because yes. they were marketing it. They were an SEO agency at first. So, um, a lot of parallels between, between Basecamp and, and Moz and that they were a service agency they were blogging about it for years. They came out with a product, and that that their you know the initial install base was made up of, of readers, which is uh, which you know which is partly why blogging has you know continued to play such a powerful role in, in business. Um, and you guys, like you said back then, you had really um, sort of you know strong points of view that that you would blog about. That hasn't changed, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, wh- <laughs> when did you? The, I just read one recently. Uh, uh, was it called choosing profit so, something of that nature yeah why we choose profit why we choose profit yeah and yeah. and that's that's sort of a, a become a staple of, of both you and dhh and, and others at Basecamp, right you, you guys are very uh very opinionated and, and and make that public and in most cases it's it's different than a lot of the stuff that you read about other companies in the software space and silicon valley culture and you guys buck that trend a lot which is um which is uh, sort of like been part of the DNA of Basecamp, really, right? Since the early days, yeah, for sure. I, I think you know we have opinion. Everyone, by the way, everyone has opinions. Some people are are unwilling to share them. We're willing to share ours, basically. Um, and some people's opinions are more strongly held than others, and some people's opinions are are um, you know uh, more controversial than others. And all, you know, everyone's everyone, but everyone's got one, of course, uh, or many. Um, so we we put ours out there, and we're not afraid to do it. And we you know. I think one of the things is a lot of companies are afraid of alienating anybody because for them, anybody could be a customer. And so if you're going to alienate someone, then they're like, well, that doesn't make business sense. For us, we, we think the opposite. I would love to alienate a lot of people um, because it sort of uh, brings your actual customer base into focus. And then you get to make stuff for your people. I mean, the notion that everyone in the world is a customer, I just don't, I mean, yeah, technically, yeah, anyone could, could plop down money for your product, but I think it's more important to find people who are really good fits on both sides, that we're a good fit for them and they're a good fit for us. And that means um, exposing your opinions and points of view and, and then attracting like-minded groups who go, yep, yeah, this is what I'm after. I want, I'm all in on this. Um, so we're okay with, you know, I mean, we don't go at it thinking we're alienating people, but we recognize that we are and we're okay with it because it also, it just brings everything into focus and creates a much clearer contrast between us and another firm or another company or another product. And so 
Those who like us come to us. Those who do not, do not. And that's perfectly fine because we don't need every customer in the world. And, um, you know, this is, again, this is very different than Silicon Valley mentality, which is conquer, dominate, change the world. You know, they keep talking about the world. I mean, the world is enormous. Like they want to dominate every, they want to, companies want to own industries. Like I don't want to own anything. I don't need to own an industry. I mean, I do want to own things like I'd like to own a house and all that <laughs> stuff. Right. But I don't want, I don't need to like own an industry and dominate an industry and crush the competition. Like why, why we, what's up with the violence? What was that all about? Like, why do we need to do that? Why can't we just like carve out enough to build a great business? And hey, we can have a great business and they can have a great business and the other company can have a great business and someone else can have a great business and there's still plenty of business left over for someone else and another hundred companies to do something great. That's how we look at it. That's how we've always approached it. So we're just out to find find our customer base, um, make sure we generate more revenue than we spend and then we're all good. And if that's, you know, Today, we have over 100,000 paying customers who use Basecamp, which is much larger than I would guess a lot of people think. Um, and business has never been better. Last year uh, was our best year we've ever had. Um, so and I'll say, in terms of revenue, uh, we haven't gotten our exact profit numbers back, but it may be our best profit year, too. Don't know yet. But uh, you know, 18 or almost 19 years into it, uh, business has is, is never, is never been better. And, uh, so I think that like this whole point of view works well for us. It may not work for anyone else. It may not work well for others. I think it would, but it may not. And again, that's not even something we have to concern ourselves with either, which is, you know, we're just going to focus on what works well for us. We're going to share those things. And if some of that is useful to somebody else, then please take it and make, and make sure and, and use it. And we're not afraid of, you know, we don't keep any secrets internally in terms of how we work and why we do the things we do. In fact, we're extremely open about it. So all those things I think are, are, um, Maybe it, now, now things are becoming more common where people are willing to share their inside process and how they do stuff and whatever. Um, but a lot of them only share the, the final product. And we're actually trying to share the process too. like, this is exactly how we work and why we work this way. And this is what happens when you work this way. And this is what happens when you charge customers money. And this is the stuff you can do when you do all that. So anyway, yeah, we, uh, to sum it up, we've, we've probably bucked many trends over the years. Um, we don't do it intentionally just to buck trends, but we, we do, make sure that we're intentional about sharing our point of view and, uh, and, and lay the cards on the table and see what happens. Yeah, it's authentic. And I think a lot of, a lot of that mentality that you speak of is really the sort of, you know, VC mentality of explosive growth. And, you know, as, as you said, industry and, and world domination, was there ever a time, even in the early, early days of Basecamp where, where you considered raising money or you were offered, or was it, was it always sort of, part of the moral code of, of you guys that you wanted to bootstrap this and you wanted to focus on profitability and work-life balance and those kind of things? Um, we've never pursued raising money. Um, we've been approached by all the usual suspects and private equity and acquisition targets and all that stuff. So we've probably had well over 100 opportunities to, to do that. And we've always decided not to. We did take money, though, um, in 2006 from Jeff Bezos. Um, he's the only other person who owns a piece of Basecamp. Um, but that wasn't money for the business. So uh, he bought some shares from David and I personally, and that money went into our bank accounts. Um, so it was a way to take some risk off the table after having been in business for about seven years. Um, but that wasn't ever money for the business. Our business has always 100% been 100% funded by customers. And that's how we've always wanted to do it. I feel like that's what business should be. Um, 
And uh, I think that's sort of what every, pretty much every business wants to do. Um, and then there's, of course, the exceptions. And, and a few percent get funded in a big way. Most do not. Most have to figure out how to figure it out on their own. The dry cleaner down the corner, they, they don't, they don't, no one's giving them money. Maybe, maybe a bank's giving them a loan, but probably not even that. They figure out, they got it, like, they've got product, they've got costs, they've got rent, they've got salaries, they've got to figure out how to charge more than they, than they spend. And that's fundamental business 101, and that for us is how we've always operated our company. All right, Jeff Bezos, it's not a bad guy to have in your circle. Um, yeah, I mean, we don't, you know, it's funny because we, we first took, this is, you know, gosh, 12 years ago now. Um, he, you know, we used to talk to him a couple times a year and then once a year and then once every few years. I don't think we've talked to Jeff maybe in, oh God, three years, four years maybe. Um, I think when we switched to deciding to go all in on Basecamp and sell off or spin off our other products, I think we may have asked him for some advice there. Um, but that's the last, I think that's the last time we talked to him. We have to share numbers with his team and the whole thing. Cause he, he gets distributions every year. We're an LLC. So at the end of every year, whatever profits left over gets, gets distributed to the, to the members. Um, and he's one of those. So we do, we do that, but we don't really get his advice or seek his advice. Although we could, if we, if we wanted to, but we haven't in quite a while, but still great. I mean, love, love to have a guy like that in our corner just in case. For sure. Yeah. And so, and so moving back a bit. Uh, in the, in sort of those early days of base camp, what, what kinds of things, because this is early, this is really early on, right. In terms of, of the SaaS base, I mean, the beginnings of it really. So a lot of the channels that have now matured into big acquisition channels for companies didn't exist for, right. for base camp. So what, like, what were you doing back then to, to, to acquire your first 100 or 500 and, you know, a thousand customers, like what kinds of things were working? You know, it's it's funny. We, we, I've never thought of acquiring customers. Like I've never I've never really thought of that. And we, we've experimented sometimes over the years about you know with, with AdWords. And we we have gone in these moments like let's see what we can do if we spend some money on this and that. But I've never really. I just don't think that's not how I thought about it. We just shared stuff, and customers came through the door. You know, we, we'd shared, we share everything that we do pretty much. And that generates attention in an audience. just like you were talking with Rand about and, you know, similar playbook, like just, I mean, they're of course, they're more aggressive about this, but fundamentally originally, like they had a blog before they had a business and that's kind of what we did. And that's sort of how we still do it. Um, so I don't, I don't even know, I don't know the first hundred customers we had. I don't, I don't know. I, I know very few of our customers, you know, like I said, over a hundred thousand of them, um, that pay us on a monthly basis. So I can't know most of them. Um, I know that a lot of them were agencies. Some of them were people I, I did know, but um, really it was, we, we put something out there. We spent a lot of time on the marketing site, uh, making sure that the site explained the product well, because like you said, this was the early, early, early days. People weren't even comfortable necessarily putting their credit card on the internet yet, you know, like or buying things on the internet. So we had that problem. We had to deal with you know, security concerns like, Especially at that time, people just were not comfortable putting data online anywhere. Um, we also had to deal with concerns like, well, we were still a web design firm. We launched Basecamp. And then now we were technically selling Basecamp to competitors because the other web design firms, we could compete with them on projects. And so they were concerned that, well, were we going to look at their customer list and compete with them and know what projects they were working on? So we had, to, we had to, you know, of course, we would never do that. But we had to sort of make sure that fear wasn't there. We had to be clear about that. So we were kind of more concerned, not about like acquiring customers because somehow they were coming through the door. It was more about 
making sure that we were as clear as we possibly could about the, the concerns that people would have when they would email us, like, what about this? What about that? It wasn't so much like, is this product worth it or should I try it? It was like, can I trust it? And who are these people behind it? It was all that sort of stuff that we were mostly spending our, our time with. Um, I think um, putting a price on it right from the beginning was a big help because it said this is a business, this is a product, and people can buy products. A lot of people aren't comfortable putting their data into something that's free because it's like, well, I could go away in five minutes or who, who are these people? And they have no obligation to me, really. I'm not really a customer. If, if it's free, it's not, I'm not a customer. I'm just like, I'm a, I'm a contributor to their customer list, but I'm not really a customer in a sense. So I think that helped a lot. Um, but yeah, we've never really been aggressive about this. I think all in over nearly, well, near, um, 19 years or so, um, we probably spent less than a million bucks on any sort of marketing. Uh, we've experimented with, with podcast advertising, we've experimented a little bit with Google AdWords. We experimented a little bit a year or two ago with Facebook ads and Twitter ads, and we did not like what that felt like. Um, what do you we, mean, we, what, what that felt like? Uh, paying those, co- giving money to those companies. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. That's what I mean. So uh, it's like, I don't want to, sp- I don't want to, I don't want to contribute $200,000 a year to Facebook's bottom line. I don't like what Facebook stands for in most cases. Um, so like we felt like that's not what we want to spend our money. We don't, you know, the way we think about money is that every dollar is a vote. And whenever you spend money on a company or a product or something like that, you're voting for it. And so, you know, you want to, if you're thinking about voting, you want to vote for things you agree with and for things you want to see more of in the world. And we didn't want to see more of, I don't want to see more Facebook style stuff in the world. Um, or currently Twitter style stuff in the world necessarily. Um, so we decided that wasn't a good place for us to place our votes basically. So we stopped doing that. Uh, and then we sponsored some podcasts instead. So for example, we, we sponsored some stuff on NPR. We just were the lead sponsor for the making Obama podcast series. Um, and we're kind of putting some money behind things we care more about than just sort of trying to acquire customers. Right, and, and not, not thinking be, about the medium in which we're acquiring them. Right, and yeah. it might not be the most measurable, right? Because I mean, podcast yeah, is, it's is not tough, at all. Right? Attribution is tough right now with podcasts. No idea, yeah. no idea. And we didn't even like have a go to basecamp.com slash Obama sort of like we didn't have like a even a special URL because I just I didn't care. Like it didn't it didn't matter. It really didn't matter if it worked. We wanted to support this production. That's what mattered. Um, and hopefully we get some customers and we have a little ad running on it and whatever, and they go to basecamp.com and they figure it out. But we, we didn't do it to evaluate whether or not it was worth doing. We did it because we wanted to do it. And I think, um, that's how we tend to spend our money, uh, or we want to spend our money more like that versus, you know, because we just, you know, again, it's a vote. It's about voting. It really is about voting. And certainly there are probably places we can spend more money and get more customers. But if we don't like what we're spending the money on, it's not worth getting customers that way. And that's just how we see the world. So I know that's different than, than many, but um, that's just how we do it. And so um, we've written about this as well. How One thing you- we tried was instead of paying Facebook and Twitter, we started a little um, like mini affiliate programs. We tried that. That didn't really work so well. So we, we're not doing that anymore. Um but again, it, you know, at the end of the day, we just, we share, we get ourselves out there. We do podcasts like we're doing, you know, you and I are talking, we do our own podcast. We're starting to do some video or some vlogs now, I guess you'd call them. Right. Um, and we're just, you know, speaking at conferences and writing books and, and we just prefer that as a way to generate awareness and the product has to do the selling. The product has to sell itself. Love, oh yeah. I love that. 
So what did uh, I know? I know you guys are relatively small, and I mean that in that you guys are almost well going on, you know, fifteen, sixteen, eighteen year, what, however years old, and you're at fifty one employees, which is. Uh, and and where you guys are at in terms of revenue, right? Like most software companies would have scaled to thousands of employees by then, which is, you know, uh, not not you know not necessarily a good thing. But uh, how do you structure like marketing marketing team? Like, uh, do you, like do you have a marketing team? And and if so, like what are they? Are they focused mo- mostly on content? Because like you said, you're you're more about sharing, um, and and using the product to market yourselves. So what does that look like? Yeah, we don't have a marketing team. Um, we have, um, uh, yeah, we, we, we don't basically is the answer we have. Uh, so David and I do the majority of the writing for the company. Um, so I guess we're the marketing team kind of, right, uh, yeah. but, but, you know, um, but nobody here has a, has a title of, of, of marketing we do have a, one of our designers is primarily what we would call internally our marketing designer, but he doesn't do marketing. He, he writes, I mean, he does in the sense that he makes basecamp.com website. And, you know, he does that. He does the, the public facing design, um, but it's not a marketing job. It's, it's a communications job. It's, it's, it's presenting the product. That's kind of how we look at it. So there's no, there's no, like, we don't have any salespeople in the company. We don't do any outbound or inbound sales. I mean, if someone emails us and asks us a question about product, of course, we're going to answer the question, but we don't have dedicated salespeople, um, inbound or outbound. And we don't have any dedicated marketing people whose job is purely to acquire customers. Um, the writing is is mostly by David and I, although other people in the company write as well occasionally. But uh, the bulk of it is from David and I, and then we we also write the books and that sort of thing. Um, so uh, I, I just feel like though you know we wrote about this in one of our earlier books, which is basically everything is marketing, in the sense that a terrible error message in Basecamp is bad marketing. A great error message is great marketing. Um, great customer service is great marketing. I mean, in a lot of ways, our customer service people are our best marketing people because they're fantastic. We have a great customer service team. And, uh, and if people email, I'll go to, go to right now. So if you go to basecamp.com slash support, um, we actually have a, have a, a um, let me just get the accurate number. We have a, a big thing at the top. It's like current response time. Right, Currently, yeah. it's 10 minutes. About 10 minutes, um, yeah. Usually, it's between 5 and 10 minutes. So if you email us, you're going to hear back from one of us, one of the people listed below within 10 minutes um, or 5 or whenever it is, um, and they're fantastic. And there's no autoresponders, and you hear from a real person, you get a real answer to a real question that quickly. I mean, you almost can't beat that for marketing. That's a great marketing investment. Even though we don't think of it as marketing, it is marketing again. Just like, you know, uh, great onboarding experiences is great marketing. And, and all the bad things, like a bad email, a bad, uh, a bad notification, too many notifications, uh, you know, all those are bad marketing. So I think that's kind of how we think about it overall versus having a, specific set of people who are responsible for that another thing that to me is is really since we're on the website uh is is the pricing model it's uh you now you, you talk about how you know Basecamp includes uh, messages real-time chat to-do list schedules file storage 99 dollars a month flat uh, and you even kind of go out of your way on your pricing page to say not per person not per project just 99 dollars a month period um, obviously, and again, Basecamp is not one to sort of succumb to the standard, right? In, in the software space and in Silicon Valley culture. But when you have so many companies that do like, you know, the value metrics, right? Whether they're tracking bandwidth or, or per seat pricing, why, why this approach? Like, how did you guys settle on, on just like the hundred dollars flat and they just get everything? 
Yeah, I think most of those other pricing models benefit the company, not the customers. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah, and so for us, it's like, well, let's make it simple. You want, but you want to buy Basecamp? It's like you go to the store and you want to buy some peanut butter. It's four bucks or whatever it is, right? It's like you want to buy Basecamp. It's nine nine bucks, or or it's nine ninety nine a year. So it's either nine nine bucks a month or nine ninety nine a year, and that's it. We've over the years, we I mean, we sort of were the pioneers here for this multiple tiered pricing with this chart that everyone, a lot of people still have, where you kind of call out the most popular plan in the middle and the whole thing. Like we, we did that early on when we first launched Basecamp, it was 99, I'm sorry, 19, uh, 39, 59, I think were the three prices. Then over the years, we've tested a bunch of stuff and had a bunch of tiers. And then, uh, I don't know when it was a year and a half ago, it just all pissed me off. I got frustrated by the whole thing. Um, we, we did a little bit of price comparison out there and we found out that Basecamp was the cheapest product in the category. And that actually bugged me. I'm like, I, I don't like that. I don't like that we're the cheapest product in the category. Um, it doesn't feel right. And if our success is tied to the fact that we're just the cheapest, like, I don't want that to be why we're successful. I, and I don't believe that is, but hey, maybe it is. So let's not do that. So we, we decided to get rid of all of our tiers and just say, we're going to be 99 bucks a month. Basecamp is a steal at 99 bucks a month for everything it does. It replaces five or six separate products. And it's not just the products that it replaces. It replaces the cost of those products. It replaces onboarding people in four or five different places. It require, it, it replaces the need to integrate across multiple products, which, of course, technical people love to do. But technical people don't make up the world. Small business owners cannot stand having to piece together five or six separate products and try to make them talk to each other, all with different interfaces and onboarding people in different places and paying five different prices. It's like, what a nightmare. And you hire one more person, all of a sudden your monthly your monthly spend goes up an, an extra, you know, 175 bucks because you, you have to pay more for five different products. Like what a nightmare that is for people who wants to deal with that. So we said, let's make it fair and reasonable. 99 bucks a month, all inclusive, as many people as you want. Price never goes up. I'm also a very big fan of, I think it's a sort of a secret to business success, which is to make sure most of your costs are fixed and predictable. And I, I, I think that, uh, forcing adjustable, rates on companies is actually makes it harder for those companies to do good business. So if you're, again, if your monthly spend, you hire five or six new people and all of a sudden you're spending an extra thousand bucks or so in software, like, well, so now you're spending 12, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or 12 grand a year, all of a sudden, boom, 12 grand a year. Cause you had five, five more people to, to, to buy more seats for software. Come on, that's crazy. So you can have, you can grow from four people to 400 to whatever you want. And Basecamp's always the same price, fixed, no matter what, no matter how many people you have, 99 bucks a month total, all-inclusive. And so we just felt like that was the right thing to do. It's also, frankly, easier for us. It's easier for everybody. And whenever we can find win-win-wins like that, it's a win. Now, some people would argue, like especially at the low end, they have like two people, and they'd say, well, 99 bucks a month is too much for us. And I, and I understand that. Um, and we do have an, uh, like a, an exception project or price that we do offer small teams of three or fewer or i think it's three or five i don't quite remember now actually offhand but uh, it's 49 bucks if you have just a few people um but we don't that's not really advertised it's not a big it's not a big thing we don't want people to have to make decisions and choices but it's there um but also i would also say like i you know i still in the two people 99 bucks a month still a steal it's still a steal for everything you get for base camp um there's nothing like base camp on the market it's a very different kind of product and so but I understand that people don't don't feel like there's enough value there on the low end for them. I get that. That's fair. But we'll be around if, if you know when they when they buy their five or six other products or when they use a bunch of free stuff and they find out that that stuff goes away in two years because the company folds. 
and they have to integrate four or five different other products together. And they, they eventually they realize like, this is actually a mess. Like I should have everything in one place with one simple system with one price that everyone can understand. And I onboard people in one place and we'll be, we'll be around for them when they're ready for that. So that's kind of how we look at it over the long term, because we are very, we're long-term focused. You know, we've been in business almost 20 years. We want to be in business for another 20 years. So we'll be around, um, and we're, we're stable and we'll, uh, we'll continue to be there for, for people, even if they think it might be a little bit too expensive in the early days. I get that. I love how the, I think the thing I love most about the pricing too, and, and how it doesn't change. So like you were mentioning, if you add four people, you know, typical software, you know, your, your, your per month cost could go up a few hundred or, or grand or whatever it is. Uh, it's almost as if, you know, the more people, uh, you know, Basecamp customers, as their companies grow, Basecamp becomes stickier. They're not paying more money, but if they add 10 more, 15 more, 20 more employees over the course of several years that are now using Basecamp, it's the product becomes stickier. When you increase the price, the stickiness factor doesn't necessarily have the same effect, right? Because it's like you're paying that much more money. Um, but when you have that many more people relying on a product that uh, doesn't sort of increase on them, uh, that's a lot of software companies talk about stickiness factor, but that to me is, 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 uh, is, is probably the biggest benefit of, of a pricing sort of that doesn't change on you. It could be. Yeah. And, you know, um, I just look at I just look at it and I think it's it's reasonable. It gets more and more reasonable over time. Most software, especially I mean, software priced by the seat always gets more expensive over time. Um, Basecamp gets more reasonable as you grow. I mean, what what a great thing to invest in! Something that becomes more reasonable as you get bigger, and actually something that becomes more far more affordable as you get bigger. And that's what we try and talk when we talk about Basecamp and buying Basecamp. We 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 want people to think of it as as the best investment they can make in their business. Um, not necessarily that it's just 99 bucks because that's cost. And although, you know, I, we've experimented with this language in a few different ways and we're still trying to playing with it a bit, but I, I still like this notion of, um, base camp is, you know, when you, when you buy base camp for 99 bucks, you're making the best investment you possibly could with that money in your business versus this is a cost center or a spend or something like that. Yeah. You spend the money of course, but it's an investment and it pays off. And it gets better and better and better and returns more and more and more over time without costing you an extra penny. That's, that's a great investment. I mean, what, what, what that, that's, that's sort of the definition of an investment. Actually, you get a lot more out of it over time and you get more returns out of it over time. and doesn't cost you anything more. So I, I love that model. Um, but you know, again, so when you're, you know, when you're funded by VCs and, and, and the, the, the target is growth, um, you, are going to figure out ways to squeeze every penny out of everybody, which means pricing at every single, you know, stratify your customer base, look at every possible variation and figure out ways to charge some more and some less and just to get more and the whole thing. It's like, yeah, you can do all that. Yes. And I understand why people do that, but we've chosen not to do that. And it doesn't just, it doesn't just come down to the choice about pricing, but it comes down to the choice about company structure and long-term interest in, in keeping the company around and creating fair pricing for customers that doesn't get more expensive on them as they grow. And all that stuff is all tied together. But if growth is the only thing you're interested in, because that's what, you know, the people who power you are interested in, well then, um, then you're going to look to make sure there's no money left on the table. We leave plenty of money on the table and I'm perfectly okay with that. I, I don't, I don't care. Like I'm not out there to, Make right. sure every last penny is is in my hand. I just don't. I don't care. It's not. It's not interesting to me. Not important to me. 
Yeah, it, it's Basecamp's pursuit of and, and valuing profitability above, you know, conquering the world. As you were just alluding to, that that not only defines your business, but also like directs the product roadmap, how you guys price it, your marketing. And there's this great quote uh, in in the article that you wrote roughly, it looks like a year ago, the one uh, we mentioned earlier, why we choose profit, in which you said, having a profitable business doesn't mean squeezing the lemon for every last bitter drop. It's not all or nothing. You can't, you can be profitable and generous, profitable and fair, profitable and kind. These aren't opposite ends of the moral spectrum. So I guess like how, how did how did you, um, this, this sounds like such a, such a cheesy question, but, um, like, like how did you, it, cause it can't be easy, right. To, 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 to not chase growth, right. Um, so, so many companies do it. So many, so many companies sort of succumb to that pressure. Uh, why, why over the years have you guys maintained that value? Like what, what is it about Basecamp and, and, and you and David specifically that, that um, tends to value those things and not care about chasing every penny and, and every last drop of the lemon. Um, it just I don't. It just feels right. It feels natural. Um, and it, it, we we don't need it because we're not trying to like our our metrics are not driven by things like ROI. You know, like the, I, I don't need to show a return to anybody. Um. And so, so if you don't think that way, or if you don't have those requirements, you you tend to think a little bit differently about what's important to you. And also, frankly, it's not fun. I I don't want to do stuff to try and squeeze pennies out of people. That's, I I don't want people to do that to me. I don't want to do it to people. So like everything's a trade-off, everything's a choice. And how do you want to spend your time? And what are the things you want to optimize for and all that stuff? Like for us, it's not about optimizing for every last dollar. It's just, that's not, that's not what we're about. That's not what we care about. Uh, so we don't do that. Um, and you know, could someone else walk in, in my position, if, if I resigned as CEO or something and someone else came in and, and could they, you know, find another 10 million bucks a year to make off our customers? I'm certain they could. Absolutely. Um, but like, okay, that's fine. But like, so what kind of, <laughs> I keep coming back to, so what, like, we're doing very well. We've done very well for a long time. We do generate tens of millions in revenues on an annual basis and tens of millions of profits on an annual basis. Like we feel pretty good about all that. And we much rather spend our energy making the product better in a way that excites us that, uh, you know, doing things for, for our employees that excites us doing things for our customers that excites us versus trying to take more from people. Um, and I don't think charging money necessarily means taking. So I, I don't want to equivocate that because we do charge money. But there is a point where you feel like we, we're charging enough, we're doing well, and that's good enough. We'll do other things and, and focus our energy elsewhere. So that's how we look at it. I mean, we don't have like a, you know, customer acquisition, director of customer acquisition or say like any of that stuff because we, that just doesn't interest us. I don't know how else to put it other than as simply as that. So I'll, I'll stop before I keep repeating myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like the part where you talk about FU money and how most people think about FU money as they think about millions. Whereas yeah. Basecamp thinks of it in terms of $1 in profit is the ultimate FU money because you don't, you don't owe anyone anything. Um, yeah. And, and, and I love that mentality. Talk, talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of always hated this term FU money. You know, it's like, it's such a horrible term, I think, like in so many ways. 
Um, and, but I played off it because, you know, typically it's like FU money is like, you know, Lamborghini money and, you know, millions of dollars or whatever, hundreds of millions, whatever it is. Right. And for us, it's just like, as long as we're profitable by a buck a year, that means we're, we can, we can do it our own way. And that using that term is the ultimate FU, which is like, don't need that big industry to tell us what to do. Don't need those big money people to tell us what to do. I don't need to go make billionaires richer. Uh, you know, I don't need to do any of that stuff. Um, uh, I don't need to play that game. I don't need to hire those people. I don't need to do that stuff. And to me, that that's it. So it's like, it's, it's, it's the ultimate freedom. Profit is the ultimate freedom in terms of business. Of course, it's not the ultimate freedom in the world, but ultimate freedom in terms of business, profitability, in my opinion. Um, and the fewer people you have to answer to on the outside that want something from you that doesn't really align with what you want to do, the better off you are. And, uh, uh, that's sort of what it comes down to for me. And, um, I, I don't want to work somewhere where, where I have to, um, you know, hit numbers for someone else. Uh, I don't want to work somewhere where, um, or counting pennies that way. Um, it's just not fun. It wouldn't be fun. And so the way I've always tried to run my business is to build it in a way where I could go to work every day um, at a company that I'd want to work at. And I want to work at Basecamp. So we optimize our business for the way we want to work. And um, that's that's how we're set up. So that's uh, that's that's the answer to that question, I guess. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and that obviously is reflected in the way that uh, the culture that you guys have built at, at Basecamp. Do, isn't there like a... a like not no over 40 hours a week policy or, or did I read a blog article on your yeah on signal versus noise about that how a lot of people talk about work-life balance a lot of software companies talk about it or they'll throw like you know the ping pong table in the office to try to keep you there right uh yeah but, but you guys are serious about this right like not working over 40 hours a week and going home and being with your family and and doing the things that recharge you yeah I mean I will say up front we don't track hours in a in a way where we can absolutely guarantee that people are checking out exactly at 40 hours but in every way possible um we encourage 40 hour work weeks as a maximum number um we don't want people working on the weekends we don't want people working at night of course we have different shifts in different people in different time zones around the world so like it's it's a bit uh you know but in their own time zone um People should work during the day. Nine to five is about fine. Whatever it is, if it's eight to four or nine to six or 10 to six, I mean, whatever. Like, But eight hours is enough time during the day. And that's actually a better way to think about it. It's not necessarily even 40 hours a, a, a week, although, of course, that's like kind of a the summary statement. But really, it's about eight hours a day. Eight hours a day is plenty of time. It's a lot of time um, to do great work, especially if you have it all to yourself. And that's what we try and do at Basecamp is give people – 40 hours a week, I'm sorry, eight hours a day to themselves. So we don't have at a company level, pre-scheduled meetings, people's calendars are not full with, with meetings. Um, and, and, uh, you know, on any given day, people have their day to themselves to do their work. And that's the idea. And when you have that eight hours is more than enough time. Um, you should be ready to go home at that time. Like I should be done. That's enough. And so that's kind of how we do it. And, um, We've even built some stuff into Basecamp to encourage that into the product, and not only encourage it for our employees, but for for our customers. So we have a feature called Work Can Wait, which allows, which we launched with Basecamp three uh, a couple of years ago, which um, 
allows people to every employee to set their own work hours, publish them in the in the product basically, um, or set them in the product I should say, and outside of those hours. So for example, I had set mine to nine to five. Outside of those hours, Basecamp cannot send me any notifications. Period. I cannot hear from Basecamp, which means I don't hear from work because if we use Basecamp to run our entire business. Uh, we don't use any other chat tools to, to for business related stuff. We don't um, we don't use other to do to we don't we, we use Basecamp. So outside of Basecamp, nothing's really happening in the business. And so outside of my work hours, I don't hear from it, and I hear from it in the morning. I'll go back in the morning and check it out. Or if I want to check it out myself, that's that's fine. I can go in at nine o'clock at night and take a peek and see what's going on. But that's on me, and that's the difference. Um, a lot of products these days are pulling people back into work all the time. And that to me is, is a really, is, is a tragedy. And it's, it's a, it's an epidemic. It's terrible. So we've tried to do that in Basecamp by, by allowing people to, to set their own boundaries. Um, and as an organization, we always talk about it. Eight hours is enough, 40 hour weeks, plenty in the summers. We only work 32 hour weeks. We, we take a day off every, every, usually every Friday. Some people take Mondays, some people take Wednesdays. It's up to each person, but people only have to work four hour week, four day weeks. I'm sorry. Um, during the summer months from like May through September. So they do that. And, um, uh, uh, and the idea is not to put in more hours during those days. It's actually to work the same number of hours during those days and then take a day off, an extra day off. So you have a three day weekend. So it's like roughly 32 hours. And that forces us to be even more economical, uh, with our and efficient with our time. Yeah. We get a little bit less stuff done in the summer, but that's fine too. What's wrong with that? Like, um, again, this whole idea of, of optimizing for extreme productivity is just not something we're interested in. I, I, I don't, I'm not into that world either. And um, you, you have so, some remote too, right? How, what percentage? Most people are remote. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. So we have, um, technically we have about 14 people in Chicago. I think it's 14. Um, and then the rest, we have 54 people in the company and then the rest are, are spread out around 30, 35 or so, whatever cities around the world. Um, U S Canada, Europe, South America, uh, someone in Hong Kong now and Australia. Um, and, uh, I think I covered all the places, uh, hopefully. Um, <laughs> and, um, but even the people in Chicago, most people work at home most of the week. They may be in the office one or two days a week. You go into our office, there's four or five people there any given day, maybe. Um, so basically we're a fully remote company. And you know, we have an office in Chicago and our lease is up shortly and I'm sort of contemplating just not having one anymore, not having an office in Chicago. Like, I don't know why we have to have one in Chicago if no one else gets one anywhere else. So we're thinking about that too. And we'll have to see how, what all, how it all pans out. But um, that's how we built the company. I think our like, I mean, David, my business partner, David DHH, he, he was in uh, Copenhagen when we first met. So we worked together for a while for good number of, I don't know, maybe it was a year or two. I don't even remember exactly now. I, my, my mind is shot when it comes to like specifics, you know, 15 years ago or whatever it is. But, um, uh, he was seven or six or seven or eight time zones apart from me. And we worked together. We built base camp that way. David was a student at, at a university out there in Copenhagen business school. And he was, he was giving me 10 hours a week. I think I was paying him 20 bucks, 25 bucks an hour or something like that. And we built base camp together that way remotely back in those days. Um, with just hit 10 hours of his time in a, a, a month, I'm sorry, a week. And so, um, you can do all the stuff. We've grown up this way. The first programmer we hired outside of David was, was, was a fellow named Jameis Buck. And he lived in, um, I think at the time he lived in Salt Lake city, Utah. 
And we've just sort of always continued to just hire remotely that way or hire locally if there's someone great nearby, but we don't really have those requirements. So you don't have to be here or be there. The only time we do have requirements and position is, for example, support needs to cover time zones around the world during the day. Um, we don't want people working night shifts. We just have decided culturally that we don't want to do that. So if we want to cover later later hours, we'd find someone who's shifted a few time zones over. So that's why we have people all over the world who do customer service for us. So we have full 24-7 coverage. Um, and then we people work on the weekends, but they don't work during the weekdays. And or we, they do some weekdays, but also work the weekends. So we do some of that strategically in terms of, of where people live. Um, but technically, people can live anywhere they want. And, and uh, we just want to say like 40 hours is enough every week. And Basecamp is really transparent, too, about its culture and, and, and how you work. So for the listeners, uh, check out the, the publication, Signal versus Noise, as Jason referenced earlier on, on Medium, and you'll find a treasure trove. I love how you have an Our Greatest Hits tab on the yeah, blog, so you, you can easily find a lot of the posts that I just referenced, too, in this, in this episode. So definitely check that out. Uh, before I let you go, I, want, uh, I know we talked before we jumped on recording about uh, a book later this year. So um, I want to keep everybody in the loop on that. What, uh, what, what's, what's, what's your plan? I guess like what's, uh, what's this one going to be about? Yeah, sure. So uh, the working title um, is The Calm Company, C-A-L-M Company, although I think we're going to be changing that title. But that's sort of what it's been. But that's sort of the spirit of it, which is, um, you know, you ask people what it's like at work these days. And a lot of people will say the same thing. They'll go, oh, it's crazy at work. It's like what everyone says. It's crazy at work. And you're like, what, what's so crazy about it? And like, well, geez, I'm working like 60, 70, 80 hours. Um, deadlines are totally unreasonable. They're impossible to meet. And they keep shoving more stuff in them. Um, I can't stand half the people I work with. Um, my manager is unfair. Like, um, the, the, you know, we're chasing dollars because that's what our investors want, but it's not what our customers want. Like all these things, like it just, it's crazy at work. And, and we want to say it doesn't have to be crazy at work. It can be calm at work. Um, that, um, that can be the state. Now that doesn't mean that it's hunky dory perfect all the time. I mean, over in, for, for example, in the past few weeks at our company, we've had some, some hiccups. There've been some, some, some things going on internally, which, which are sort of, um, there's some discontent here and there that happens. It totally happens. And we're working on managing it. And, and it's, it's, you know, we've, we've been very open about it and I try to be as open as we can about it and, and we'll get through it. And, you know, this is just part of, part of, you know, an organization and groups and people. So I'm not suggesting that calm means everyone's happy 24 seven all the time, but for the most part, I think we have a very calm cu- culture, which is 40 hours is enough. Eight hour days is enough. Um, there's no, uh, expectation of immediate response. I think this is another problem that's been happening at a lot of businesses. I think chat is a, is a major problem in a lot of companies and people are beginning to realize it. It was novel two years ago. And now people are like, what the hell have we gotten ourselves into where everyone feels like they're every, everything's gone real time. Every conversation's real time. People feel like they have to follow a bunch of things at once. They've got a chat room open all day. And part of their, their, their window is like exposed to constant real time conversations. I mean, that's toxic. That's pulling you away from your stuff all the time. It's very hard to focus. People message you. They feel like they need you if because it's easy to message people. Everyone now feels like it should be easy to respond. So you need to get back to people really quickly, and that creates a, a certain amount of anxiety and chaos and, and and craziness around that that whole thing. Um, and there's just a lot of anxiety in in business and companies today. And people are running faster and they're sprinting. And even the language is like sprints. And it's like what, what, sprints. It's like running all out. 
and being exhausted at the <laughs> end. Yeah, I, I was rush. a sprinter in high school and college. I ran, I ran track and like I was a sprinter and I was exhausted. Like that's what you do when you sprint. It's all out. Like that's not the right thing to do either. Um, so even being careful about the language you choose, um, sprint to me is like a crazy word where for example, a cycle or, 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 you know, something like that was kind of what we talk about. That's, that's a calmer word. It's like, we still work in these six-week cycles. Some other people might call them sprints. We don't. We call them cycles. It's different. Or batches and, too, right? Didn't you have an article that you, you have big batch and, and small batch? Yeah. So a cycle, which is six weeks, is made up of big batch projects and small batch projects. And that's sort of like the, sc- the scale of the scope of the project. Is this a big, hairy project that's going to take the whole six weeks? Or is this a small one that's going to take a, you know, fewer, fewer or, or, you know, two weeks or 10 days or three days or whatever? So we kind of have different size projects, but all within a cycle. Now, you could call that a sprint, but to me, that's like, well, what does that suggest? That suggests running all out. And someone might go, ah, that's just a word. Well, yeah, it is just a word, but it matters. It matters um, because it sets the tone. And I don't want people sprinting around at our company. I'd rather people have a, have a nice, calm, comfortable pace. So it's all of that stuff, all the things we've learned about how to run the calmest company we can. Um, it's not like a Zen garden at base camp, but like we try to be pretty calm and pretty chill about things and, and, and give people time to think and react. And actually I want to eliminate reactions. That's another thing. Like a lot of products these days have reactions. I think it's a terrible word. Um, I don't want people reacting. I want people thinking, I want people stewing, I want people marinating on things and then saying something when they're ready. Like that's a different attitude. Um, if you want to get back to me tomorrow, that's fine. I don't need to hear back from you immediately. If I say something tomorrow's fine, whenever it's fine. Get back to me when you're ready to. So it's that sort of attitude which we've tried to cultivate inside Basecamp as best we can. And the book is about that, how we've done it, um, or how and how we're doing it and how we're trying to do it and missteps we've had along the way and things we're trying to learn about. But this is that, you know, you don't need to run a crazy company or a chaotic company or a, a company that where everyone's tired all the time. You can you can you can run a calm company. So or it doesn't have to be crazy at work. And so that's sort of the idea behind the book. And you're shooting um, for fall 2018? Yeah, fall release. We just signed with a publisher. Um, and uh, we're, manuscript is, is due in, in uh, by the end of this month, or actually by the beginning of, of April, so soon. Um, and uh, um, then it's editing process. We've, we've designed a cover for it, although we have to get final approval on the, on the, uh, from the publisher and the whole thing, and the name has to be final. We need final approval on that and the whole thing. But basically we're rolling. And uh, end of this year, fall 27 or 2018, the book will be out. Um, again, I wish I could tell people exactly what it's going to be called, but we don't know quite yet. But we'll, you'll hear about it on Twitter. You'll hear about it everywhere, I'm sure, when it's, when it's ready. And if you can't wait until then, check out Rework and Remote by Jason and David, both highly regarded and uh, highly recommended to you. I've read both of them uh, remote several times just because I've been, I've been a remote worker now for geez, four years. And, uh, there's just a lot in there to, to take from, from your experience, um, which is great. So definitely check out those two. And, uh, also I would recommend following Jason on Instagram where you'll see a lot of pictures of relic watches, which will make you feel bad probably about the one you have on your wrist. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of, a lot of foreign cars, right. Uh, that you should. Yeah. I always like watches and cars cause I, I like design. And to me, like watches and cars are two great things that can be designed. And how, in many cases, they're all the same. You know, car, four wheels, a motor of some sort. Yeah, now it can be electric, but whatever. Motor, chairs, or seats, windows, like doors. Basically, like, you've got this thing. 
you've, you've got this basic category and they're kind of all the same, but yet they're all so different. And it's a lot of it has to do with design. The same thing is true with watches. A watch has to tell you what time it, a watch tells you what time it is. Um, and it can tell you other things like the date and the month and the year and a variety of other things in a chronograph. But, but basically it's, they're all kind of the same. They got to fit on your wrist. They're small and, and, but there's a million different variations on it. And I love that because it's a good reminder. You see people trying to design apps and design things and they feel like there's just one, well, they did it this way. There's only one way to do it. No, there's a, there's a million ways to do everything. That's probably an exaggeration, but there's so many different ways to do things and studying categories of things that have, that are basically the same, but showing all the variation, I think is a great way to learn uh, about the nuances of design and what matters. So I, I've always sort of enjoyed those things. And sometimes I share pictures of, of them on my Instagram account and some of the stuff I own, some of the stuff I don't, I just observe stuff and I'll take pictures of things I see. So, um, if you see a Lamborghini on there, you're like, whoa, no, I don't own a Lamborghini. Um, <laughs> I was going to say anyway, the watches, uh, the, some of those watches, are, are those all like on your wrist in those pictures or are some of those just ones you come across? It's hard to say. I don't know. I'd have to look. Uh, I take a variety of pictures. Some, some are mine. Some are, some are uh, other people's. Some are my wrist. Some are their wrist. Some of them are, I just put their watch on my wrist. Take a picture. So, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't really, I don't specify what's mine and what isn't because it's not about that. I, I don't, I don't. I don't do it for that reason at all. I do it to, to share pieces of design and things I think are beautiful or interesting. And, and it's not about ownership. Um, and that's, that's not why I'm doing things. Well, now so. we've piqued everybody's interest. So I'll have to check that <laughs> out. What, what do you think yeah. of smartwatches? Not your thing? Um, not my thing. Real, uh, as a daily wear, not my thing. Um, I, don't, I don't like... I don't like the... I mean couple things. I like to know what time it is. I don't like like looking at it and not being able to see the time and have to raise it to my wrist. So that's like one thing I don't like about, for example, Apple's watch. Um, uh, I also don't want notifications on my wrist. I, I want fewer notifications in my life. Um, so that kind of negates that in a big way for me. And I typically usually always have my phone on me and I like the effort that it takes to pull the phone out to look at something if I really want to. And I like the bigger screen for all the things I want to do, like mapping something or looking something up. Like the, phone, the, the watch is not a good screen for that. But I do wear uh, my Apple Watch when I run because I do, I do uh, want to track distance sometimes. I'm sort of curious about distance. Um, not that I'm trying to, to beat anything because I, I, don't, I don't race myself, but I'm just curious how, how far I run on a given day and what my heart rate is. I'm just kind of curious about that stuff. So I, I do do that. So for me, I think the real, the real um, category for smartwatches is not the smartness of them. In that kit. It's actually their, their fitness devices. I think... That's really the real, real appeal, long-term appeal is going to be that. Um, and I think the watch actually is a, is a, is a stopgap form factor. I don't think that the watch is even the right form factor probably for fitness. But um, I do use mine for that, so I, I, I enjoy that. But they, they, they lack sort of the nuance that interests me in terms of design, which is um, all the different ways in which you can um, – um, basically design a, let's call it a circular piece of metal with hands on it. And, and, you know, the numbers are, or, or lines for indices and like the colors and the materials and how the materials work together and how they shape and the size and all that stuff. There's not, there's a lot of variability in the, in the analog world that there isn't in the digital world. So I, I just enjoy the, the analog yeah, world sure. watches more. For yep. sure. Jason, it's always a pleasure, man. Th- thanks for coming on and, and sharing so much and, uh, looking forward to the book and, and, yeah, thanks again, and, and, and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much for having me on.
Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.